Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Today we are in part two of a series looking at what it means as the children of God to be called out, looking at the idea of what does it mean to live according to his purposes as laid down by Jesus and throughout scripture. His purposes and perhaps not ours. As followers of Christ who have had their lives transformed by the work of the cross and who are now part of his purposes and his plans to see his kingdom come, what does this mean with shoes on for us in everyday life. Last week, we looked at what a great passion should be as a called out people, that we are called to live out of love. We looked at that verse in Matthew 22, which says, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That this love can change the world, our lives and our neighborhood. It is the unconditional, unmerited It is the ever-flowing, life-giving and grace-giving, transforming of communities, of lives and minds and hearts and souls. It is transforming of politics. It is family restoring and redeeming. It is sin-forgiving. It is body-healing. It is the love of Christ that flows through Calvary to each and every one of us. And today we move on from what our great passion is to see what is our great pursuit as followers of Christ, and what it is to live faithfully and to live fruitfully. I want us to read from Matthew 28, and it's the passage of the Great Commission, which we will, most of us, be familiar with. And it says, while they were going, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders, they devised a plan to give a large sum of money to the soldiers, telling them, You must say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story is still told among the Jews to this day. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age." There is no greater adventure than the adventure of seeking to live our life with God, the creator 
of the earth and the whole of the universe. Nothing is more exciting, nothing is more thrilling, nothing is more life-giving, and nothing is more difficult than living with God. It will give us opportunities to see and experience things that we did not think possible. It'll bring people into our lives that we would never normally meet. It will expose the deepest and darkest sins and fault lines in our heart. It will challenge our self-reliance. It will demand the best of us. It will draw out the best of us, and it will confront the worst of us as well. And it will never end, because this journey is eternal, but it is worth it. To be a follower of Jesus Christ is to live with God at the center of our lives and to live according to his instructions. It is to live well, it is to live purposefully, it is to live intentionally, and it is his desire for us to live freely. I know that we live in a culture here in the Western world, lots of things promise us freedom, but if I can put it as gently as this, they are lying. Money will promise us freedom. Education, one more educational level, one more qualification, will give us freedom. Position or promotion will give us freedom. Sexual liberation will promise us freedom. Living as one sees fit, do your own thing, whatever is your, your desire will give you freedom. Here, have this, do whatever you like and freedom will be yours. Now, in their rightful place, they can bring some freedom, but ultimately, it is Christ that brings this freedom. The only thing that brings us real life and it will never fail is an encounter with the, uni- with the God of the universe at the very center of all that we do. Saved, yes, but is he at the center? Eternally secure, yes, but is he at the center? Encourage us all in this great pursuit of following Jesus in the chaos and in the busyness of life. I want to ask a question today, especially to those who have been saved for maybe a few years, maybe four or five years, or perhaps you were raised in a Christian home. And my question is this, when was the last time we discovered something new about God for the first time? When was the last time we discovered something new about God for the first time. When was the last time he took our breath away? When was the last time we came to communion and our hearts were so softened because the revealed work of the Calvary that was in front of us? When was the last time we asked him to show, show us something new and wonderful about his character? You know, often in churches and in Christian culture, those, who have been, those of us who have been saved for a while run the very real unspoken risk of assuming that the main group of people that need to learn or discover something new about God in their faith is those that have been saved far more recently than we have. That, oh, bless them, they will learn that. Not that we would ever say that. Oh, but that's really nice, and they're gonna learn these things. I believe we all need to be actively learning and pursuing new things about God on a daily and weekly basis. That old thinking is not true. When was the last time you memorized a verse that you hadn't learned as a child? 
When was the last time we set out and say, I am going to learn a psalm and I'm going to have it so that I can speak it and, and breathe it and live it and live it even when I don't have my Bible with me? When were we last brought to our knees at home when we thought of the incredible work of the cross? When was the last time we read the Bible and we have the freedom and we were overawed by the fact that we have the freedom just to do this? And yet through this, we have the revealed will and character of a living God. The, the, the pursuit never ends. This excitement, this following, this quest should never, ever end. But you know, you can tell the people for whom it has stopped. They are the ones always telling others how they should be living or pointing out to you or to them your faults and telling you how you should live, that you should take time to do this or do that. And you know, when I find that when people tell me how I live, should live my life, it's extremely, how, extremely like how they live theirs. They are the ones that you go to share with them something that you've learned about God or something in his word and you say, I've just learned this amazing truth and they say, I knew that. That annoys the heck out of me. Don't even have the graciousness to say, oh, I'm so pleased. Oh, I knew that. And did you know about that? There was something else. It's like, shut up. Perhaps you've encountered this. Don't mean this to embarrass Don, but about three or four months ago, I discovered something. It's, it's, you might just think this is really sad. But I discovered that John Knox, the great Scottish reformer, the father, the founder, he who established the um, Presbyterian church, that before he came into Presbyterianism or before he had a real encounter with God, he was a Catholic priest himself. And that absolutely fascinated me. And I was, next I was talking to Don, I said, Don, did you know that John Knox was a Catholic priest? And he said, no, I didn't. And I was absolutely thrilled about that. <laughs> and it says a lot about him, but do you know what it did? It made me so nervous that I'd got my information wrong. <laughs> that I went back and I checked it, and you know, this is super sad. I checked it again this morning. I want to be a person who keeps pursuing after the things of God. I don't want to be the person that always has that last word. I want to be that person who believes that there is more in front of God to discover than I've ever learnt before. That if we could adopt as a culture of a people that are called out that we believe that there is so much more about him that we can learn and discover and grow in and be thrilled by, I believe it will transform our lives daily and weekly. You know, all of us growing, all of us have more to learn and we need to set our hearts on pursuing him. Some of you will have heard these two little anecdotes of my own life but they were quite transformational for me in regards to thinking more about this walk with, with God. Two conversations that really made me think. One is quite funny and well, the other one's quite sad, really. The first one was uh, at my 40th birthday party. And if you're wondering when that was, it was 19 years ago. But I was at my 40th birthday party, as I had to be, and a friend said to me, 
It's the first day of the school holidays, I suppose, isn't it? He said to me, Chris, you are only halfway through your life if you think you're going to live until you're 80. Oh, I haven't spoken to him since. <laughs> he said, you're only halfway through, you're only, what did he say, a friend, you're only halfway through your life if you think you're going to live until you're 80. It was quite, quite funny, really, wasn't it? But also quite, quite sobering. Another dear friend, who you will know, um, he comes here occasionally, dear friend of mine for about 30 years, he says, Chris, at our age, we don't make lifelong friends anymore. Quite profound. That at our age, we don't make lifelong friends anymore. These conversations have radically changed my approach to life, how I approach my years that are left and the friendships that I have, how I am going to go and live my life. I'm going to forget the petty. I want to have nothing to do with the inconsequential. I want to dismiss, dismiss the muppetry of the irrelevant and concentrate on what God has. That there should be one thing before us, and that is pursuing the living God. You know, in certain parts of the world, when, when people say goodbye, I think it's in Spanish parts of the world, when people say goodbye, they say this, may nothing new ever happen to you. Isn't that incredibly sad? Incredibly sad. May nothing new ever happen to you. I don't know if it's after safety or whatever it is, but it's a mindset that limits. It's a mindset that shouldn't, I believe, be our testimony when it comes to the things of God. If we as individuals within our faith community could adapt the posture that all of us are growing, all of us have something to learn from God, that all of us need to know something new about him on a regular basis, I believe that our lives would be transformed and vibrant and exciting and dynamic to those around us. Three things I really want to share with you very briefly this morning, ever so simple. Matthew 18, Matthew 28, verse 18, suggests to us three simple things that I believe will help us in our pursuit. It says, we follow Jesus, we listen to and obey his word, and thirdly, we can trust him. We follow Jesus. In the pursuit of being followers of Jesus, it is Jesus himself we follow. As it says here in Matthew 28, Jesus came. It is Jesus who shows us what God is like. It is Jesus who explains his character. If we want to discover more and more about God, then we need to rediscover who Jesus is. Colossians says, and you'll know this, it says he is the image, the visible expression of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. I find that this excites me, that I see in Jesus who God is. We are not left guessing what God is like. We don't have to rummage around in the dark, make it up for ourselves. He has revealed who this incredible and awesome God is. He has shown us his heart. He has shown us his character. He has shown us his priorities and he has shown us his commitment to us. Years ago, not so much today, in Christian thinking there was or there is something known as the hidden God, Deus absconditus. It is an idea very, very popular with people like Luther and Calvin 
and refers to the Christian idea of the fundamental unknowability of God. In other words, you can't really know God. And in 1525, I think it was, Luther wrote this incredible work that you could not really know God. This comes from Isaiah 45, verse 15, where it says, Indeed, you are a hidden God, you God of Israel, the Savior. Actually, that's not what that is talking about. And I would like to beg to differ with such great leaders of our faith because whilst we don't know everything there is to know about God, he has not hidden himself from us. In fact, he wants to make himself so known to you through his word and through his spirit that we would not cope with it. We are Christians. We are followers of Jesus. We are here today at a Christian church. We're not theists, we're not deists, we're not anything else. We are a Christian church. This means that God through Jesus sits or should sit at the center of all we are and that all we do, that we follow him. We don't follow cultural trends, we follow him. Everything goes through him, through the filter that is Christ. There is no such thing as Jesus plus. It is Jesus that we put everything through. We follow his mercy, his example, his words, his actions, his priorities. Everything we do should be making us more like him. It's always a good question to ask ourselves. If I'm getting embroiled in this discussion or this argument or this idea, does it make me more like Jesus? And I think if it doesn't, then we have to ask about our involvement in it. Jesus is the center. You know, we are to be rooted in grace, we are to be reliant on his revelation, and we are to live lives in response to him. Jesus came to them. It was he who started the dialogue. You know, Paul picks this up, and there are many, many quotations I could use, but Paul picks this up in Romans 5, verse 8. He says, but God proves his love for us in that whilst we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John, an old man writing to the church in Ephesus, writes, we love him because he first loved us. We never initiate anything with God. We respond and our lives are to be lived like this. We are to respond to what he wants us to do on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. This is to be the posture of our heart every day. You know, we don't come to God and say, I've got a great idea, and he says, I'd never thought of that. I often give him my ideas and my suggestions, but he takes them up very, very infrequently. Listen to these words. Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You know, trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus demands courage. It demands determination, it demands conviction. And despite what some preachers may want us to believe, following Jesus is hard. It means that we have to allow our priorities to be reordered. 
We have to allow our lives to be reconfigured and built on what he calls us to do and to be the people that he wants us to be. Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Assumes that in following Jesus, we will grow weary, that we will be tired, that we will be discouraged, and we will be disheartened along the way, but that he is there to encourage us, and it is Jesus that we follow. As a follower of Christ, I get greatly concerned when churches always chastise people when they come to church rather than edify them and encourage them and build them up. You know, last week I said this, and I think it needs to be said again today. It is a miracle that some of you are still going in this thing called the Christian walk. I know so many stories of your life and what you've been through, going through, and what the future holds for you. It is a miracle that you're still walking with Jesus, but the key is that you are walking with Jesus. You know, Jesus did not have a romantic notion about the cost of discipleship. He knew that following him was as unsentimental as duty and as demanding as love. We make a choice. I will build my life on him, whether I feel like it or not, whether things are going well or not, whether I am in the valley of the shadow of death, I will follow him and I will build my life on him. Those are the tough situations that we make a choice. Not in the spectacular, but in the ordinary choices. How I am a dad, how I am a husband, a brother, a father-in-law, a neighbor, an employee. I often mess up, but I choose to keep going. It is in the stuff that you don't know about me and that I am involved in that I have to make choices about who I am and what I do with my faith in Jesus Christ. I may have been hurt but I choose to carry on. And so must we all, whoever we are and whatever this involves and whatever it calls us to do, how we deal with our family, our employees, our neighbors, and whoever. See, this is where real discipleship takes place. This is what real faith looks like, not in the stellar moments or the created world of social media, but by saying, Jesus, I got no idea where you are but I'm choosing to follow you. Sitting by a sick relative, deciding not to retaliate, deciding not to be bitter, deciding to fight for my marriage. Romans 12 verses one to three in the message is so good. So this is what it says. So here, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, you're eating. You're going, to work, you're going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be, you'll be changed from the inside out. <laughs> Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. We are trying, I believe, to live well. Some of us here today are without doubt facing real challenges this coming week. Marriage challenges, difficult doctor's appointments, elderly parents, in-laws that create hell in our life. 
things that other people know absolutely nothing about. But the call is to live well in these moments with Jesus as our guide. Let God be the person we follow in these moments. In these moments, Grace and strength is needed, and he is there with us. Friends, this is a lifelong journey. And this is a very personal thing, and you can disagree with me on this, and this is totally fine. But I get nervous. That's not true. I get very nervous. When I hear pastors and preachers and well-intentioned people saying, have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? And you, you haven't got the guts to say no. You say, well, yes, it's better to lie than to have their animosity. But have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Have you surrendered it all? But in essence, that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. And it may be just me. I understand in part what they're asking. Have I given my life to Jesus? <clears throat> but it means much more, I think, than this. You see, I did not surrender my whole life to Jesus in a second. Yes, when I was on my knees in October 1973 by my bed, I gave him my heart and repented of my sins. I have to come to accept, to realize that when I was converted, this is what I wanted to do, that is surrender my life to Jesus. But since I was converted, 47 years ago, I have repeatedly taken back control of my own life. I have not lost my salvation, but I have repeatedly done things that I shouldn't have, and I cannot honestly say that I have surrendered every day of my life to Jesus. We may have made a decision in a moment, but it's a lifelong commitment. That which is lifelong can only be surrendered, in my opinion, in a lifetime. It is not how we start this race, it is how we finish. That which takes a lifelong commitment takes a lifelong to work out. And the exciting thing about that is that we will go through seasons of difficulty, difficult, uh, seasons of challenge, seasons of barrenness, even seasons of sin. But then, but because we are committed in our journey to the Master, He will bring us through and He will be there for us. That we come and we surrender to the will of God is the maturity of making good decisions day by day, week by week, month by month. That is surrendering to Jesus. Michael Spencer, really good author, writes the following, which is both challenging and exciting. Jesus shaped spirituality. Here's Jesus say, believe and repent. But the call that resonates most closely in the heart of a disciple is, follow me. The command to follow requires that we take a daily journey in the company of other students. It demands that we be lifelong learners and that we commit to constant growth in spiritual maturity. Discipleship is a call to me, but it is a journey of we. I need you and you need me. We need each other most often to say good and encouraging things to one another. But sometimes we need each other to say hard things to each other. Sometimes to take someone by the hand and say, you know, I'm not sure that's the right relationship for you. I'm not sure that that's what Jesus wants you to do. Again, this idea of a lifetime call to follow him. Being men and women called out together to pursue him because he is our savior. In the time that we have 
left next week, I am going to look at the Great Commission, if that's the way my thinking is going to go. But the Great Commission, to sum it up very quickly, it means to go is about intentionality. To make disciples is about purpose. To baptize is about identification. To teach is about instruction. And to command is about obedience. But for that to flow, it needs to flow out of this pursuit that we have of Jesus Christ. <coughs> I just move on quickly. Not only did Jesus come, but it means that we listen to and we obey his word. Jesus came and said to them, it is his word that guides us. It is his word that we need to hear. I know we all know this to a certain point, but it's good to remind ourselves today that most of what Jesus says in the New Testament, he is speaking to his own disciples. Nearly Jesus' entire ministry is directed at his followers. And that, I believe, is the challenge today, is that we as his followers need to be hearing and in and living his word. The test to us, and probably the biggest challenge to us, is to live it ourselves. I find the Great Commission hard to do. Not that we have to attain some level, but it starts in me and it flows from, that, from there. John Stott, an Anglican scholar, great, great writer, he speaks to the link between the state of the church and society and how closely it is linked. He says, if you want to have a go at the state of society around you, the first place that you need to look at is the state of the church because, he says, society reflects where we are at at the church. And it is deeply uncomfortable for each and every one of us, but maybe society has found itself where it is because there has been that lack of salt and light and that introverted persuasion that we have. You know, I believe that we need to be honest about the spiritual temperature of where we're at spiritually and in the church today in the West. For whilst the church across the world is growing faster, maybe than it ever has in the history. Some people say that it's growing faster today than it ever did in the early church. But what is happening where we live? I love hearing about what God is doing across the world. I so want him to do it here. I so want him to do it in my own country. It's great, but Lord, don't forget us. I am tired of hearing that God is on the move when the church around us in the countries that I love, church attendance is falling and churches are closing. You may say that's not true in my church, but it's not my church, it's our church. We are the body. I did some research on the last census that shows that church attendance in New Zealand is going down. You know, we are facing deep and difficult days. Is God moving globally? Yes, he is, but that doesn't mean that everything is fine for us and there is something of our pursuit of him that should encourage us on in regards to where we live. You know the crazy thing about scripture that it can talk in contradictory terms but absolutely be true. You know that Joel 2 says, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and yet in Matthew 24 verses 12 says, in the last days the love of many will grow cold. These two things can happen at the same time and we need to be a people who wanna buck that trend 
that want to say something of my pursuit will reflect something of a living God. Hope sent me an article or a link six or seven months ago and it challenged the increasing culture of podcast and YouTube usage amongst Christians. His basic premise was that we spend so much time listening to what others are saying about God rather than what God is saying, that we've lost the art of truly reading for ourselves, hearing his voice, and grappling with the things that we don't understand. In order to be ecumenically balanced, having quoted an Anglican, I now want to quote one of the leading Roman Catholic scholars in the West today. Ryan T. Anderson says, don't outsource your thinking and your study of God to others. Do it yourself. And Jesus said to them, and what is Jesus saying to us? How is he directing our life? Maybe it's just faithful, continuing on, and that's great. What are the decisions we have to make this week? How we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we set our priorities. What is he saying to you? He's not saying the same to you as he's saying to me, but what is he saying to you? Obey his word. He wants to direct us in hope. He wants to direct us into courage. He wants to exhort us into faithfulness. Jesus came and he said to them, and it says, my third point is that we can trust him. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We need to remember when this is happening in this account of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is now the resurrected Jesus. He is the risen, death-conquering, sin-destroying Jesus. This Jesus talking to his disciples, talks to us today. And he says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given and entrusted to him. Is there a part of the world or this universe where God's authority is not present? No. In the words of a Dutch reformer, neo-Calvinist prime minister, he says, Abraham Kuyper says, there is not a square inch in this whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. You know, maybe this is an older generation, maybe it's not for the younger ones. Now, some of us were brought up with that spirituality that might need some changing for us. That we were told, were you ever told that, well, if you go to that place, God's not gonna be with you there. It was so bad. It probably meant the pub in those days or the disco. Or if you paid cards, it was a whist drive. Some of you don't even know what a whist drive is. But if you go there, Jesus is not gonna be there with you. Gosh, you're on your own. And God help you if anything does happen or he's not gonna be there. That's not true, that's suspicion. That's superstition, I should say. That's hocus pocus. You know, nothing can be further from the truth because this is the theology of fear. And it is a theology that contradicts the teaching of Jesus himself. He says he will never leave us. And that is good. And that is wonderful. And it has another side to it as well. May I add that because he will never leave us, he'll never forsake us, that he will always be there with us. It also means that he watches when we turn our backs on him. He watches our decisions. He is present in our action and he never leaves us. He is there with us all the time. There can be a good side, and if I could say it, not such a good side to it. Who ultimately has the power 
in our lives or even in New Zealand? Of course, the answer is God, our sovereign Lord, who sees and sits over every decision, all the aspects of our life, everything that happens to us and is going to happen, he is over all. He sees and hears everything in your family. He hears and sees every conversation that is not being held in your family that other people are having about you, having about you that may not have good intentions for you. He hears and he sees those. He sits over everything. You know, I'm really delighted to know that God sees and hears every conversation that is held in the beehive today. Those that are for public consumption, and those that are not for public consumption. We need not be afraid, we need not be fearful, we can trust in the fact that he is good, he is over every conversation. And who is he? He is Jesus Christ, the risen and exalted God to whom all authority on heaven and on earth has been given and he calls us friends. He calls you his, he calls you loved. But what does this statement, all authority has been given to him, really mean? It comes up two or three times. And I want to tie it in very quickly as we close with two verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when it says these words, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who puts all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all. It's not a great couple of verses. What does that really mean? <laughs> all authority in heaven and earth is given, and we get those two verses. Some theology 101, Jesus Christ is part of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they exist co-eternally, and they are the same in character and in every way. We believe in a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but we believe this about Jesus Christ, that he has been given all authority by the Father to rule on heaven and earth. This is the Jesus that we are called to trust. When he has completed all that he is going to do on heaven, and we believe now in faith that he will do everything, when revelation is wrapped up and we are in eternity, he will give his authority back to his father, and he will functionally subject himself within the Godhead. That's the theology of it. And you may well be asking, what the heck does that mean to us today? What does that make a difference? Why does that make a difference to us today? I believe it makes a huge difference to us because in that Godhead, in that relationship, there is a priority, there is a pursuit that we are called to follow, that Jesus does what is instructed on high from the Godhead. This is an eternal reality that we as followers of Christ are called out, need to learn, that we submit ourselves to Almighty God. But in that example that we are given, he tells us that we need to trust one another. Jesus trusts what's been given to him. We need to honor one another. We need to love one another. We need to accept our standing in before God 
because he has placed us in that situation, because he has placed us, because he knows that we can deal with it, and he knows that we can do whatever he asks us to do. That we have the same value, whatever our function is in life, whether we're the Father, Son, or Spirit, it symbolizes to us that we are all precious and all valuable and all have a role to play and no one person is better than the other. If you think you have a menial job today and you look at somebody who's a CEO and you think, I'd love to be there, Jesus has placed you where you are. And in the Godhead, we have an example of being submissive and flowing with him, that our value and our worth is the same if we've been saved six months or 60 years whether we have a certain function or a not. You know, as followers of Christ today, we share the same standing before him as each and every other person who has ever been saved. And we can trust this God. You know, we speak and we often quote Campbell Morgan, Charles Spurgeon, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a couple of guys that quoted today. We quote Rick Warren, Nicky Gumbel. None of them are loved more by God than any of us here today. No one is loved more than we are today. Musicians, please come and join me. You can put your own summary of your own life here, but I'm gonna put mine in. Put your own CV in here. I am a dairy farmer's son from South Wales. So why would the creator of the universe want a relationship with me and yet he does? Why would he want a relationship with you and yet he does? It means, he comes, he asks us to follow him, he asks us to obey him, but above all it means that we can trust him. Whatever comes our way, we can trust him. So much so that there will come a day when there will be no more tears, there will be no more sorrows, and there will be no more suffering, no more loss, no more pain, no more sin, and we will be pleased that we trusted in him. Friends, our great pursuit as followers of Christ is to fall in love with Jesus, hear what he says, do what he asks, and trust that he knows what he's talking about. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.